This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Before we start today, I want to give you a warning. This episode is about the Loma Prieta earthquake, and some of the things you're going to hear people describe are pretty gruesome. There are people talking about death and terrible injuries and situations that are terrifying. So I just wanted to let you know, this episode may not be for everyone. This is not your century. This is not your century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. October 17, 1989. Game three of the World Series between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants is about to start at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. On ABC TV, broadcasters Tim McCarver and Al Michaels are reviewing the highlights from Game 2 on the pregame show. And he fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take... take I'll tell you what, we're having an earthquake. An earthquake. The Loma Prieta. It's centered near Santa Cruz with a magnitude of 6.9. There wouldn't be a Game 3, not for a couple of weeks. It quickly became evident that this was a major quake. Reports trickled in as TV and radio stations thrown off the air struggled to get back on. The Bay Bridge had fallen down. No, wait, it was just damaged. A double-decker freeway in Oakland had collapsed. Power was out all over. Some buildings had fallen, especially in the Marina District, where there was also a massive fire. The death toll would be 63. The first indications were that many more had perished. The Chronicle labored heroically to put out a small edition of the next day's paper. The giant headline on page one said, Hundreds dead in huge quake. Never was a newspaper so happy to be so wrong. More than 2,400 people were hurt, about 400 of them seriously. You can find the Chronicle's coverage of the 30th anniversary of the 89 quake at sfchronicle.com. You'll find stories, photos, graphics, and audio recordings of people who were there. Today and tomorrow on Not Your Century, I'm going to play some of those recordings for you. Today, some memories of citizens and first responders who were at some of the key sites. Candlestick, the bridge, Cypress structure, the marina. Tomorrow, you'll hear from several Chronicle reporters talking about what they were doing when the ground started shaking and right after. We'll start at the ballpark, which is where most people around the country first became aware of the quake because of the World Series broadcast. Perry Butler is the owner of Perry's Restaurant on Union Street, which celebrated its 50th anniversary in August. On the night of the quake, he was at Candlestick Park working. I was at Candlestick that fateful night, and we were in a, in a tent out behind center field uh, doing a catering event for the Lurie. And uh, I went in about five, ten minutes before the game was to start and was standing outside that little small five or six person elevator outside the player's locker room, standing ironically next to Willie Mays. And the elevator was filling up and about to get filled up. And all of a sudden the place started to shake. And I thought, is there a truck going by? What's And I realized it was in fact an earthquake. I sprinted as fast as I could out to the player's parking lot, took a right turn, stood back and looked at the stadium and stood next to a police officer. And this huge roar went up. Everybody saying, 
oh my God, or more colorful language at that moment. It was utterly frightening and remarkable at the same time. And it was clear that something very amazing had happened. So I waited around a little while. Then I worked my way back into the stadium to go find my wife and the couple we were going to watch the game with. And ultimately found them. And my wife, Joe, had been in, the, in line at a concession stand to get a beer. And she saw those concrete pillars actually swaying like so much spaghetti. And when we went back down to our seats and everybody's standing around on the field and it all of a sudden becomes quite clear, there's cop cars on the field, there's not going to be a game. And somebody near us had a Sony watchman and you could see the Bay Bridge, the section of the Bay Bridge that had collapsed. And it was like, whoa, this is really serious. And then you could see the fires in the marina. I ultimately worked my way back to the, the catering tent because everybody who had been a guest there wanted to come in and have a drink for obvious reasons. The fire department wouldn't let them come in and have a drink because they were worried about the safety of the tent and the light poles might fall or something, which they didn't, and they ultimately cleared it. But we were handing drinks out the side of the tent to everybody that came by and stayed there till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and then drove back through a very dark city with no traffic lights and no anything. And it was just a surreal, bizarre experience. I've listened to quite a few interviews from people who were at Candlestick. You can hear them if you go to the Quake Anniversary coverage at sfchronicle.com. And I've been struck by how many people seem to have Sony Watchmans, which were these little TVs. I don't remember them being all that common. Well, Candlestick wasn't so bad. Some places were really bad, like the marina. We're going to hear next from Tyrone Banks. He was a U.S. Army medic stationed at the Presidio. He was driving in the marina at the moment of the earthquake. And he was one of the first people on the scene of a collapsed building at 2 Cervantes Street. A woman named Carol Dickinson was trapped in the rubble, along with her three-month-old baby who was trapped under her. Banks and two bystanders crawled into the darkness. We're like, okay, how are we going to get her out? She's pinned down, and without the light, you really can't see anything. Out of my little pin light. She's got dust and plaster all over. And like I said, I couldn't pull the baby out. So... We're trying to figure out a way to get her out. Now a San Francisco cop is there. So it's the two guys, the San Francisco cop and me. We're trying to figure out how to get this woman out. If we can get this beam off of her, we can get her out. So firemen show up. So we're all assessing how do we get this woman out? We can't get this baby out, which we need to do because he's not breathing. As far as I can tell, he's pinned down under her because I can't pull him out. So... He can't breathe. And minutes are passing. And then one of the civilian guys goes, hey, I've got a scissor jack. If we can get that jack up under that beam and crank it up, it may get it just high enough to get her and the baby out. I'm like, hey, I'm down for anything at this time because the clock is ticking. He goes and gets the scissor jack, start cranking it up just enough. I get the baby out. I hand it to a fireman. And I whisper, star CPR. That's the last I see of the baby. They take the baby out. Then I get Carol out. I try to do a quick assessment. She's breathing, not labored. I think she has some injuries to her legs, maybe her back. But I'm like, we got to get her out of here. You don't know if it's going to be any aftershocks or how stable this building is. We grab, I think it was maybe some curtains or make a makeshift stretcher take her out on that the firemen take her out that's the last i see of carol carol dickinson survived but her baby scotty died 
Tyrone Banks is retired and lives in upstate New York. Some of the most famous footage from that day was a car driving off the edge of the upper deck of the Bay Bridge and crashing onto the lower deck below. A 50-foot section of the upper deck had collapsed, and authorities had erroneously sent people back toward Oakland on the upper deck, toward the gap. That footage of a car falling into that gap was captured by Debbie Kelly, who was on her honeymoon. She and her husband were headed home to Oklahoma when the quake hit. When we got up to the upper deck, there was a man standing there directing us toward Oakland, and he was just waving us toward Oakland. And we began driving. Um, There was nobody in front of us. We saw nobody coming. Um, We got up to speed. Then there was a line of cars that started coming toward us. And we thought at that point in time that it was just the, the upper deck was in good shape. It was the lower deck that had cracked or fallen. And so they were using the upper deck as two-way traffic. So we were driving along, and then the traffic stopped, and we didn't see anybody else coming. And it was getting kind of eerie. And my husband noticed at the last second that the lines, the dotted lines down the the highway were torqued. They they didn't line up, and he slammed on the brakes at the last moment, and we came right up to the edge of the brake. At that point in time, we we kind of were at losses to what what had happened, and we finally figured out that the line of cars all saw the crack and the brake, but the, since there was nobody in front of us. We never saw anybody turn around, so, you know, we'd better turn ourselves around and wait for another vehicle that we were sure was coming, which was another large van like ourselves. While we're doing that, my husband um, strongly suggested that I get out the camera and start recording because nobody was going to believe that we were misdirected and this is what we saw. So I get the shot set up, and a car comes into my viewfinder, and I'm expecting it to stop just the way we had, and it didn't. And it flies off into the crevice. It hits the other side of the bridge, and there was a huge gap between them and us, and no matter how hard we tried or wanted to get over there to help them, we just could not. The driver of that car was killed, and her brother was badly injured. The family later settled a lawsuit with the state for a reported seven figures. Most of the people who died that day were on the lower deck of the Cypress structure, a double-deck section of Interstate 880 in West Oakland. After the quake hit, I was sitting in my apartment in Berkeley watching the TV coverage, and on Channel 7 there was a helicopter shot of the Cypress structure from directly above, so it just looked like a damaged freeway. Cheryl Jennings was narrating it, and as the helicopter moved to the side of the freeway and she could see it was a double-decker that had collapsed, This is what she said. That is the Cypress section of the Nimitz Freeway. And you can see, oh my God, look at that. Um, The freeway has just completely collapsed. I'll never forget that. 
it was the first time and it's still the only time I've ever heard a news reporter say, oh my God. I've since heard a clip from the Robert F. Kennedy assassination where a reporter says it. Even the reporter who described the Hindenburg explosion didn't say it. Tim Peterson was a firefighter on Treasure Island and he was driving on the lower deck of the Cypress structure when the earthquake hit. His truck was crushed and he was trapped in a 22-inch high space with two broken ankles and a broken back. I felt like I had four flat tires, so com- just completely out of control. And I don't know how many people felt that sensation because if you did, you were in trouble. In the very beginning, the sound was horrific from the motors revving. So people with a seatbelt on, you were crushed and killed, but your foot went down on the accelerator. Car can't go anywhere, just burning out. Motors revving, people screaming. That went on for 20 minutes. And then uh, the sound starts dissipating. You don't hear as much. I never thought earthquake. How crazy is that? I could hear helicopters all over the place. So they flew over to where I was, and I thought a helicopter had fallen on the freeway, had crashed and caused this. I knew the freeway fell on me. There's no doubt about that because I could hear all this confusion. Things moving, it's getting tighter, um, and nobody has come up for hours to where I was. But I could hear people trying to get up there. So I yelled to them, and they heard me, and I could hear them trying to make their way and then not making it. It was all people from the neighborhood and all the warehouses down there because they knew what happened. It was 30 feet up. So they came out with forklifts, plywood, different things. So the guys that were working on me were the true heroes. I tell you, you didn't want to crawl in there. And to crawl in there and figure, hey, this thing, all it's going to take is just fall one more time. Wham, it's over. And that was the real issue was the legs were all caught up in those pedals. And uh steering column was across my thighs. Uh, both my ankles were spun around the other way. I thought my legs were gone. And it's dark. It's disaster. Like you said, it's just ugly. And I even said, I said, hey, cut them off. If that's what it's going to take. And Andy looked at the legs and said, there's nothing wrong with your legs. They're just spun around in one of the ankles. He had to like move back. Before anybody got there, I remember thinking, this is the end. This is what it's like. So when I got out of that thing, it's like, holy shit, I got a chance. It took four hours to rescue Tim Peterson, but he recovered and he was able to resume his career as an Oakland firefighter. He retired in 2015. Mark Hoffman was a deputy chief with the Oakland Fire Department. He supervised the rescue efforts on the Cypress structure. In this clip, he's going to talk about the Berrimans. Julio Berriman was a six-year-old boy who was trapped in such a way that the only way to save him was to amputate his leg. It's going to sound like Hoffman says that Julio's sister, Kathy, was also killed, but she survived. So I could see the deck, the top deck, and there were cars that were crashed into each other. There had been some vehicles who'd gone off the freeway. Um, there were people s- scattered, stragglers, you know. But then at that point, we said, I said, we're going below deck. We're going to start going section by section. So as we crawled the decks, what we found were the cars that were over on the side that it had come all the way down to the road were collapsed and the people inside were dead. And then the cars that were over in the area that had not completely collapsed, some of them were actually, people were able to like roll down a window and climb out. 
And then the in-between cars were a mix of DOA and people who were trapped who needed help. So made a lot of noise, did a lot of, you know, fire department, we're here to look, let, you know, haul, call out if you can. And we started documenting. So we knew how many people were potentially surviving. I believe the third section I got to was where the Barumans were. So I actually then called, I could see, okay, now we have a protracted rescue. This is going to go on for a while. And we were working on that till close to midnight. There was the little boy and the little boy's sister and the mom and what turned out to be her friend were obviously deceased. He had gone between two bucket seats. He was apparently unbelted. And when they hit the brakes, when they saw everything collapsing, his foot went between the two bucket seats and up towards under the dash. And that's where the concrete cross member came down and crushed the front of the car, the front of the mother and her passenger and his foot. Everything was collapsed to about five inches tall. Even if we somehow magically could take the cross piece off and lift or lift the concrete, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tons of concrete, we, his foot would be like a pancake. So we figured he was going to lose the foot. We had a doctor who got on the scene uh, about two-thirds of the way in. They were able to sedate him. He started to prep access to get at the leg. He was ready to make a move on the leg. And then another doctor showed up from Children's Hospital, who's a pediatric surgeon, you know, infinitely qualified to handle this and took over and performed the amputation in the field. Now we're going to hear from that doctor from Children's Hospital who performed the amputation. His name is Dr. James Betts. I think an overwhelming concept and thought for me is that it wasn't an individual or even individuals, but it was such a Bay Area response for something that had never really occurred before. There were thousands of people involved with either local rescues or some neighborhood efforts. Down at the structure where I was involved, there were a lot of people along that corridor before they they got it secured. So by the time that I got there, there were a number of people in the structure itself working on the vehicle where I eventually uh, was located. But uh, up and down that area, there were individual and group efforts. So I think you can't focus on one person. You can't say that whoever did what. And for me particularly, I wasn't the rescuer for this child. I was one of many up there. So it's something that I think people lose a little bit of track of. And I think particularly for me back then, I was a little embarrassed and and taken aback by the amount of attention that was given to me personally when it really was not me. It was many people. Dr. James Betts. He's now chief of surgery at Children's Hospital in Oakland. Let's hear one more, and it's very much from a 2019 perspective. Tracy DeMuro's father died in the Cypress structure collapse. His name was Ray Holmes. Tracy is just about the age now that her dad was when he died, and her daughter is just about the age Tracy was at the time. That's changed how she looks back on the Loma Prieta quake. I lost my dad, Ray Holmes, in the freeway collapse and the earthquake in 89. 
I was 19 at the time and he was just 50. And as I reflect on the last 30 years without him, I've, I've noticed that there's been a shift in my perspective really, really in the last couple of years, um, in terms of how I think about his loss now for so long, I felt that void so profoundly, but, you know, really from the viewpoint of a daughter who missed out on sharing so many big life events with her dad, like getting married, having my first baby. And so everything that I lost, uh, because of that day. And now at, at 49, I'm almost the age he was when he died. And I have a daughter who's 20. So she's basically the age that I was, um, at the time of the earthquake. And I can't help but to see things from his perspective, really as a parent and everything that he lost. Um, I can't imagine leaving the house tomorrow and not coming home and not being there for my kids. And as I prepare to turn 50 next year, um, it's a bit of a tough milestone because there's that recognition that all the events that I get to participate in after that day and share with my kids will be things that he never got to do. And so I think that's where the sadness comes in now and, and where my thoughts are on this anniversary. Um, I still miss him like crazy. He was a, a kind, wonderful man. And despite the unbearable pain that October 17th has caused, I am truly grateful that I got to call him my dad. Tracy DeMuro lives in North Carolina. I want to thank the Chronicle reporters who conducted these interviews, Bruce Jenkins, Kevin Fagan, and Sam Whiting. Tomorrow, we'll hear from them and other Chronicle writers about their experience on October 17, 1989. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.